if you were going to start a cult? It's kind of a weird way to start a sermon. If you were going to start a cult, no, this is totally normal, just track with me. If you're going to start a cult, who would be your ideal disciple? Still kind of weird, but it's the question. Who would be your ideal disciple? If you wanted to start a religious movement out of, just from the ground up, you wanted to, to invent something that people would come to follow, uh, who would you look for as your first kind of wave of initial disciples in order to make the maximum impact on the world, to get your message out? People with low self-esteem. That's a pretty good answer. I like that. I was going to go a different direction, but I like that. It's a valid response. Um, you know, different people have different things they're looking for. I know when I was a young kid, I probably spent an inordinate amount of time praying for celebrities. Uh, for this very reason, my, my logic was, okay, if, okay, like I believe in Jesus, I believe people need to hear the gospel, we just need to get some really compelling people to get saved, and then like God will really be free to kind of do what he's up to and help, help people see the truth of the gospel. So, I remember spending a bit of time praying for, um, I'll be amazed if any of you can put a, put a face to this name. Anybody know the name Jason David Frank? Did I see a hand go? No. Jason David Frank was the original Green Ranger from Power Rangers. <laughs> the original. He, he played Tommy. If you remember Tommy, the long hair, the ponytail. Oh, man, so cool. So I would pray, Lord, if we could just save Jason David Frank, I know that the kingdom would advance so powerfully. Uh, I remember praying that the same for the guy that voiced Batman on Batman the Animated Series, uh, Kev Kevin Conroy, uh, great, great actor. Um, I remember praying for uh, Emilio Estevez, hot off of his star turns in uh, the Mighty Ducks series, uh, because ducks fly together. There you go. That was, the, that was like 10-year-old Cameron's conception of like important things to pray for and who the ideal disciple was. But the disciples of Jesus had different ideas. And we're going to look at the passage commonly known as the passage about the rich young ruler. Uh, but it's really important to remember this. Um, just before this story, in all three of the Gospels that record it, every time there's another little story. And it's the story, uh, it will, will, I'll just quote here from Mark 10, uh, verse uh, 13, that there were, uh, the, the disciples and Jesus were traveling, and there was a group of people that says, quote, they were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. So you probably, that story goes on for a couple more verses, and of course, what, what's Jesus' reaction? He chastises the disciples, like, are you kidding me? The, the kingdom is for the children. In fact, if anyone doesn't come to me like a little child, they won't enter. So Jesus is mad that the disciples are stiff-arming these little children from coming to Jesus. Um, because children weren't valuable. I mean, children generally were not viewed as potentially, like, value-adding disciples in any religious movement. They weren't the kinds of people that you'd give prime seating up next close to a, to a religious teacher. But Jesus' priorities are different. Jesus' priorities are different, even from his initial disciples. So what happens? Let's pick up in verse, uh, verse 17. Let's read this together. 
So as Jesus was setting out on his journey, they're, they're going to head their way towards Jerusalem. We might just be a few weeks out from the triumphal entry. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And let's just pause there. So, this man runs up, and, and I would argue that in the ancient world, and maybe even in our world today, this man is as close to the ideal disciple as you can get. Let's, let's look at his credentials. Number one, we're told later in this passage that he's rich. Uh, he had great wealth. And, and in this day, and probably in ours today for many people, great wealth is often viewed as a sign of God's blessing on particular people. So perhaps the disciples would thought, oh man, this guy's rich. He must be in good standing with God. We're told in Luke, when Luke records this narrative, he adds the detail that he was a ruler, uh, powerful, influential. We don't know what he ruled or how far his rule went, but we know that he was a ruler. So he had some degree of substantial influence. We're also told in Matthew 19 that he's young. So he's not only a ruler, but he's a young ruler. He's, he's perhaps a prodigy of some kind. He's not a child, but he's able-bodied, young, potentially able to carry the gospel very effectively were he to become a believer. It's also significant that he's a man. In this day and age, women disciples, by in, the, in the world's eyes, they don't, they're, no, they're not a value add to, the, to our religious purposes. Their testimonies aren't really considered that valuable. Who cares if a bunch of women come to faith? But this is a man, this disciple, potential disciple. But let's just turn to his character qualifications Number one, passionate excitement. You see him, he runs up to Jesus. The man ran up and knelt. This is someone who, who understands the urgency of the question he's about to ask. He understands Jesus as, as someone who could potentially give an authoritative answer on this. He's passionately excited. He's also got moral integrity. Well, we'll read on, but Jesus says, hey, you want... You want uh, you want to follow after me? Well, first of all, he asks him, hey, have you kept the law? He asks him about the second half of the Ten Commandments, and the man says, yeah, I've kept those. And Jesus doesn't correct him. So we, we know theologically that this man wasn't sinlessly perfect, of course, but by and large, it seems fair to assume he was a pretty morally upright, exemplary person as far as people go. He kept the law pretty faithfully. And then finally, he's asking the right spiritually significant question, isn't he? How do I get eternal life is kind of the question, isn't it? And wrapped up in that is how do I have right standing with God? How do I make sure that my eternal future is secure? So he's not coming up and pestering Jesus with some nonsense question. He's asking a serious question that deserves a serious answer. I would say, by their standards and ours, this is as pretty close to about an ideal disciple as you can get. Any religious leader would have wanted this person as a disciple. Probably would have bent over backwards to make sure that he followed. So what went wrong? Well, first they have this conversation about the law. Jesus tells them, you know the commandments. Don't murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he said to Jesus, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. The man had evidently kept the law pretty faithfully, and Jesus didn't challenge it. So what was still missing? 
What was still missing? Let's read the next couple verses. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, All right, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Is Jesus being mean? Is Jesus being unfair? I mean, seriously, like, let, let's have a little bit of sympathy for this guy that comes up to Jesus. I mean, all these things we've said about him are pretty admirable for the most part. Why is Jesus throwing this harsh command at him? The key phrase, I think, that would dispel any idea that he's, Jesus is being a jerk or anything like that is, is right there in the middle. Jesus loved him. Jesus loved him. I think what's happening in this passage is that Jesus, being the Son of God in human flesh, also functioning as the perfect spirit-filled human, he saw what was going on in this man's heart, not just his outward appearances. And he saw that there was something in this man that was cancerous, that if the man didn't deal with, it would finally and irrevocably keep him from following after Jesus. Jesus here is on the hunt for this man's idol, his chief idol. Jesus, I, th I think this is what's going on. Jesus is taking the man all the way back to the first of the Ten Commandments. Anybody remember what the first commandment is? No other God before me. No other God before me. You shall have no other gods before me, it says. And Jesus in this man saw an idol. He saw a God. He saw a God. An idol theologically defined, I think we could, we could define it a lot of ways. I would say a good definition is anything we elevate over against God. It's anything that sits in the place of prominence in our lives and our hearts. Whatever gives your life ultimate meaning, whatever controls your greatest hopes and your greatest fears, that might be your idol. Do you want to know what yours are? I think two ways. I've said this before. Number one, look at your dreams. What are the things that you spend your free time and your energy and your money trying to get? What are the things that you daydream and fantasize about having? If I could just get that one thing, life would be meaningful, it would be sweet, it would have purpose. And conversely, look, look at your nightmares. Look at your nightmares. What are the things that you wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat thinking about, oh, that, I had this dream that this thing was taken from me. And if that thing was taken from me, life would have no purpose, no value. Look at your dreams and look at your nightmares. There you might find an idol. But the question still remains, why, why is Jesus so uptight about this thing? Why is he giving them this harsh command that he gives no one else in the New Testament? I think here's a good principle. Anytime you find yourself confused or disturbed or challenged or bothered by a moral, ethical teaching of Jesus, a really, really good question to ask and to follow through, to spend some time thinking through, researching, studying, is this. How is this good news? How is this part of the good news? Because Jesus is not arbitrary and he's not a buzzkill. 
He does everything with intent purpose for the good of his creation and the people he loves. And in this instance, this is an example where he is profoundly more committed to reinstating the perfect goodness and love and justice that was his design from page one of the Bible than we are. This, like every single one of his commands, is part of that goal. So Jesus saw something in this man's heart, a cancer, that if he did not address it, if he allowed it to spread, if he allowed it to remain home in this man's heart, it would never be safe for that man or for anyone in relationship with that man. That's what's at stake here. And to understand this, we have to back up and do just a touch of theology. So bear with me here. So to understand this, we have to understand what Jesus is up to in the world. Remember, Genesis 1 and 2 are the chronicle of a good God creating a good world and good people that he designed to partner with him to see flourishing and cultivation go out amongst the planet in perfect harmony with one another and most importantly between the people and God and the people in the the rest of the created world. But humanity opted to eject from that plan when they sinned. They chose to put themselves in the place of prominence and assert their plan over against God's. And the rest of human history has been the, the story of the descent of humanity into one sin and violence and depravity after another. The incarnation, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, though, It's the final work of God that finally allowed sinful humanity to be forgiven and restored to right relationship with God. Where Jesus Jesus took the results and penalty of our sin into himself and he gave us his perfect righteousness in the eyes of the Father. Systematic theologians call this the doctrine of justification, whereby God declares us righteous and just just by virtue of, of our faithful identification with Jesus. Praise God for that doctrine. But there's another one that we often forget, and it's really connected to this issue of idolatry, and that's, that's that God is not just interested in declaring us righteous, though he is. He's also interested in making us actually righteous, in making us actually just people. Every believer, we're told, is actively being conformed to the image of Christ by the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.18 is just a great passage on it. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. As the Spirit, as the fruit of the Spirit grows in us, as Christ-like characters develop, as sin is put to death, We are little by little on this journey of progressive sanctification. There's peaks and there's valleys, but by and large, the trend for every Christian Christian should expect is is a long kind of slow growth towards the image of Christ, towards Christ-likeness in your actual life and in your behavior. And this will continue until either we die and go to be with him, And it's finalized when Jesus returns and we're all given sinless, perfected resurrection bodies that are no longer marred by the sinful flesh. Okay, so that's all nice and good, but what are we talking about here? Why is this so important? This is the linchpin, guys. Sanctification by God's Spirit is so important because 
It's God's answer to all of the sin and evil and abuse in the world. It's actually the outworking of his promise that he will one day finally say no more to every injustice in this world. It's the guarantee that our eternal futures together in the new creation are going to be sinless and joyful because Jesus to every person who will be in the new creation will have said, can I clean you up? And every person there will have at one point said, yes, Jesus, you can. You can make me fit for the new creation. You can make me safe for the other people that are going to be there that you love dearly. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. Let's read it together. He says, Every time you make a choice, you're turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature, either into a creature that's in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is at a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. This, friends, is why idols are so dangerous. They have to be dealt with if Jesus is actually finally going to protect his beloved from you and from me. Ours have to be dealt with because the idol for this man and for any of us might be the one place we say, Jesus, I love you, you're Lord, yes, I want you, I want to follow after you, I want to be your disciple, but you cannot touch this thing. Yeah, you can have all, all the rest of it, but you cannot have this. And don't you just see, if Jesus is, allows that to remain, there's no sinless eternity. Sin has been smuggled right back in. And all the cycles of sin and evil and abuse and injustice, they'll just continue. If Jesus is going to finally protect his beloved from us, he has to deal with our idols. So in this instance, the loving word from Jesus and the hard, disheartening word from Jesus, they're the same word. Jesus saw this man's chief idol and he loved him enough to try to dig it out, didn't he? And sadly, as far as we can tell, the man said no at least at this particular point in time, the idol was dug in too deep. So Jesus and the disciples have a conversation. After this exchange with the man, he walks away disheartened. They, they're going to talk, and they're going to talk about, what did this mean? What did we just witness? What's the significance of this? And here's what Jesus says. He, he looks around and, and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, listen, again, hear me, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Once again, this is fascinating because Jesus 
Jesus was not instituting a universal moral command for all Christians for all time that to be a Christian, to be a disciple of Jesus means you must sell everything, you must renounce all personal ownership, give it all away and follow after him. He never said that. To this one man, he said it. Isn't that fascinating? Though, of course, generosity is a key biblical command. We are commanded to be generous, sacrificially so, and the early church was very much in the habit, you read Acts 2, of selling what they had as any needs arose to care for those in need in the community. Absolutely. But the renunciation of all that you have is never a, a, a bar for entering Christianity. Jesus was just highlighting, this thing is going to keep you forever from submitting to me. And we have to deal with it. And we can and we should apply this passage personally. It speaks to any and every idol that might jeopardize our own relationships with Jesus, his rightful seat on the throne of our lives. But that isn't to let the idol of money off the hook because Jesus very much turns the story into an object lesson about the danger, the idolatrous potential of wealth that is unique. In fact, that's consistent with the scriptural witness elsewhere. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul says the love of money is what? The root of all evil. Perhaps all kinds of evil. In America, various studies in the early 20-teens showed that the more money that people made, as income increased, the percentage of giving decreased. On average. It certainly doesn't hold true for every individual. But that's the, those are the trends. By and large, the more you get, the smaller percentage of your income you give away. There's something about wealth that just allows itself to sink its claws into our hearts and just dig deeper and deeper and deeper. In our culture, money is often believed to be the gateway to stability, success, peace, to happiness, to sex, to power, even to love some people would say. And friends, we in particular need to listen to this because of where we happen to sit in our moment in time and our place in the, in the geography of the world. Did you guys know that if you make $32,000 annually, and I know not everyone in this room makes that much, but if you do, here's the benchmark. You are in the top 1% of income earners globally. Do you know that? So we have an embarrassment of riches that we often can't even recognize in front of us when compared to the rest of the world. So we need to, do we have ears to hear? We should listen. You want to see this horrifyingly portrayed? I can think of no better example than the movie There Will Be Blood. If you haven't seen it, I would recommend it. I would certainly recommend doing your research and investigating what you're getting yourself into and see if it's a journey you want to take first. Very dark movie, disturbing movie, about a man, an oil baron, who starts with nothing and ends up, over the course of his life, through manipulation and abuse and power plays and theft, uh, becomes exorbitantly rich culminating as he's alienating his friends and abandons his child and does all these things, uh, mixed in with a classic example of how the church ought not to respond to someone like this. It culminates with this man alone, isolated, cursing his deaf son, uh, 
an alcoholic with a mansion where no one will come and visit him as his body slowly withers away. It's a powerful parable for the potential corruption that wealth can have on our souls. And for all these reasons, Jesus says what? He says, it's hard. It is hard. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And some interpreters try to play around with that image. I think Jesus just means it as absurdly as it sounds. Camels can't go through needles. It's disturbing to even think about what it would look like if you tried to force it. Don't think about it too hard. But Jesus must deal with it in the hearts of his people because his goodness cannot stand to let the love of money remain unchecked. Why? Why not? Because it is the seed that leads to the valuing of profit over people, efficiency over goodness, and lies behind every single predatory, abusive, exploitative business practice in our world. Jesus says, that is not kingdom life. And it will be no longer when his throne is finally established on our, in our world. Some of you inside, not outside, because it's Portland, it's Door of Hope, we don't cheer on the outside, but some of you are cheering on the inside right now. Because let's face it, the rich, which probably includes globally most of us in this room, but the rich are easy targets to pin the troubles of the world on. There's very much a, a cultural groundswell of skepticism toward anyone with money, so it's an easy thing for us to go, yeah, that was awesome when Jesus called out the rich people. But the same applies to all each and every other idol of our day in our hearts that are even less fashionable to hate. Let's take sex. Let's take sex. Sex is perhaps co-equal with money in the modern West as an idol. And let's be clear, sex is good. Sex is created by God. Sex is an earthly signpost to his goodness toward us. He designed sex to be the ongoing uniter of husband and wife into one flesh, physically, emotionally, covenantally. He designed sex to be the joyous mechanism by which, listen, friends, don't let this, these things get separated in your mind, by which human life, human souls are brought into being. How amazing. How profound. But when Jesus becomes subordinated to your and to my sexual desires, and not the other way around, it is always bad news for our world. What kinds of things happen when we take the act meant to supernaturally glue covenant partners together and create new human souls, and we become frivolous with it? Jesus demands that we hand the idol of sex over to him because he cares far more deeply than we do about the evils of sexual abuse, about the lives of children and their relationships with their mothers and fathers, about the exploitations of pornography in the sex industry, about this one, how about this, about the fact that women disproportionately carry the enormous responsibility for new image-bearing lives conceived while men are allowed to sort of just skate away in our culture. Jesus can't be good and turn a blind eye to all this. And we feel that deep in our hearts every time we turn on the news and see some new abuse scandal. We think, this isn't right. And that response is the correct one. But he's far more serious about it than we are. 
Think of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. We can read that, I think, mistakenly as kind of a puritanical sort of like, and Jesus is such a prude, but this is not joyless puritanicalism. This is about human flourishing, isn't it? That's what Jesus is after. You look at the back of every single moral command, and that's what he's after. He's after our good. And seeing all these things that we, that we righteously and correctly get upset about, finally admitted. But he says, I'm not just worried about adultery. I'm worried about the heart that could even, even have a seed that could produce that adultery or abuse or insert whatever it is. That's the Jesus that we serve and love. And friends, that is good news for us. It really is. So your chief idol, it could be anything or any combination of things. It might be money. We've talked about that. It might be sex. It might be power. It might be recognition. You might be like me, and it might be pride and image as you try to mold the perception of others so that they think you're wiser and more spiritual and better and more disciplined than you actually are. It might be your marriage, it might be your singleness, your freedom, your free time, it might be your job, it might be your art, God forbid, it might be your church. Whatever yours is, the passage is a reminder that Jesus cannot be good to you or to others and let you keep that thing over him. He says to all of us, whatever it is, Set it down and come follow me. Come follow me. He loves you and your neighbor too much to do otherwise. So how does the story end? How does it end? So the disciples were exceedingly astonished, and I don't think that's a, a positive. I think, I think Mark's being a little generous here. They were blown away, perhaps disturbed. And they asked Jesus, then who can be saved? Do you guys feel that way right now? It's like, sell everything I have. Who on earth can meet this, Jesus? What are you talking about? And Jesus' response? Exactly. He says, with man, it is impossible but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Jesus says, exactly, who can be saved? Who can accomplish this thing for themselves? Good teacher, what good thing can I do to inherit eternal life? He says, no. No, the gospel is not a nice good thing that you can add on top of your accomplishments. It's a complete revolution whereby we get an alien righteousness gifted to us from God himself. No man, no woman, no matter how good, no matter how upright, can gain eternal life by themselves. But with God, it's possible. And I, think, I don't think it's a coincidence. In all three Gospels where this story appears, it's just a couple of stories out from the triumphal entry when Jesus enters Jerusalem, begins the week that's going to culminate in his crucifixion. He might be weeks out from his crucifixion right here. And Jesus loves this man. 
And the man has no idea that Jesus, for this man who has just walked away sadly, Jesus is going to go to the cross to die for his idol and for everybody else's idol and for all of our sins, big and small, that we might have life and life abundantly. Jesus was going to go to the cross to accomplish what is impossible with man, what only God himself can accomplish. And on the other side of the cross, salvation comes through only simple faith. A simple trust that Jesus is Lord, he's good and he's God, and that if I have him, I need no other treasure. It frees us up to be completely open-handed with whatever we have, to dethrone our idols, to let Jesus be our chief love. Where if he says sell, we'll sell. If he says buy, we'll buy. If he says go here, we'll go there. Because there is no greater treasure that we can possess than the love of God and right relationship with him bought by Jesus on the cross. So, friends, today could be your day even if you have no idea how to root out the idol of your heart, even if you have no idea what Jesus is even asking of you, if this is the first time you ever heard the name Jesus, all that's required is a simple yes to him. To look at Jesus and all of his love, all of his goodness, all of his justice, and all of his grace, and to say, whatever you end up asking of me, I say yes to you as my Savior, as my Lord, as my God. And I believe if that rich man had, had honestly said, oh, okay, Jesus, like, I'm beginning to see you aren't just a good teacher. You are God in the flesh, and I can do no better than to follow after. Yes, I, I want to do this. I'm sure he would have been like, well, okay, I don't know how to sell everything I have. I don't know how I'm all diversified. I don't know what assets I have. I don't think Jesus was set on this man, like, completing all this in an instant. I think Jesus would have just said, come follow after me. We'll work it out but you need to just be willing to say, yes, Jesus, take whatever I have. The man couldn't do it. And even if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, but you're, you're becoming aware now, maybe recently, maybe today, that there's some, some aspect of your heart that you've closed off from his lordship and said, yes, Jesus, I like, I like when you talk about this thing and this thing and this thing, but not this one. Today would be a day to lay it at his feet, to confess that, to repent, and say, Jesus, whatever. And don't forget the passage that comes right after this. It's the one we talked about about a month ago. Right after this story, Peter asks, or he says to Jesus, hey, Lord, we've given up everything to follow you. Remember what Jesus says? There will be no one who's given up homes or houses or mothers or fathers or children or lands or any of this stuff who will not be rewarded a hundred times in this life and in the age to come, eternal life. There's nothing you can do to outgive God. So friends, whether you, if you don't know Jesus, today's the day. Come say yes to him. Get in a community group. We'll, we'll tell you how to follow him. If you've been walking with Jesus, today's the day. Turn over those last bits of your heart to him. Let him have them. He's worth it. He's worth it. And any of us can walk out of this room today not sorrowful, but with life and forgiveness and joy. Amen?